testimony. Let me share with you a quote from Charles Spurgeon to begin with. He said, Thus there will be three effects of nearness to Jesus. The three effects of nearness to Jesus are humility, happiness, and holiness. If you turn that around to put it another way, you will not have much success in humility, in happiness, or in holiness if you do not draw close to Jesus Christ. You just won't. You will not be a humble person. You will not have the happiness that God could give you. And you will not have holiness. And we're going to see a life this morning that learned that over a long period of time. Not a quick time, but a long period of time. Last week, Dave Barton shared with us that this summer series called Follow Me as I Follow Christ, based on Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11.1, are all about imperfect examples of imperfect people following the best they could after, an, after a perfect God. And this morning, we're going to be talking about the life of Jacob. Jacob. There's a good rendition or image of Jacob as I thought of him. Do you know something? I was thinking of this this morning. Years and years ago, when our two boys were much smaller, uh, we would go off with Opa, my father, to a hunting cabin. And one year, Alf Bell, who many of you know, used to be the pastor here, went with my dad and with us to this cabin in northern Ontario. Now, Alf Bell's not a camping kind of guy, but he went with my dad and with us, and he noticed that I did a family devotions one, uh, one evening with the boys and with my dad, and so he said, he tapped me on the shoulder after supper, and he said, can I do tomorrow night? And I said, sure. So um, the next day after supper, Alf Bell disappeared for a few minutes. He came back in looking a lot like the Jacob that you're seeing on the screen with a sort of a towel or turban or something. And he loved to do this monologue or soliloquy called Hakob. You know, he'd call him in the Hebrew. And um, so there my dad and I and my two boys sat on the couch of this little hunting cabin and Hakob. Uh, gave me his whole life story and I could tell my boys were ready to bolt after 15 minutes of it. It went more like 25 I think and uh, they heard the whole story of Jacob. Well I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do a monologue but we are going to look at the story of this Jacob. And in Hebrew his name means uh, his name means to follow on the heel. Literally, to follow on the heel. Some translate it as heel grabber. The reason being that in Genesis 25, when Jacob came out of Rebekah's womb, he was holding on to his brother Esau's heel. I don't know how that works. I'm not a doctor, but that's what happened in the scripture. And so he was called heel grabber. It came to be characterized as this trickster this deceitful one. That's the way Jacob came to be known. It was a quality that was seen as overreaching. And indeed, Jacob lived up to his name, as you know, if you know the story. Have you ever had someone in your life that you just did not trust? You'd known them a long time, perhaps, but you never felt that you could really trust them that they had this fundamental flaw of 
being somewhat sneaky or characteristically deceitful. Probably every one of us have had someone in our lives like that. And it's easy to give up on them. And it's incredible how we see in the example of Scripture various people who God didn't give up on. And over the long haul, God did a transformational work in Jacob. The Lord prophesied before the twins were born that these two twins were warring within Rebekah's womb. Two nations were within Rebekah's womb, and it was prophesied to her that the older would serve the younger, which is not characteristic of Hebrew culture. And indeed, that's what happened. In fact, uh, Jacob was such a conniver, he bargained with Esau for, to buy his birthright for a bowl of stew when he came in from the fields hunting. And later on, with his mother's help, he stole the blessing of the firstborn from his father, uh, Isaac, and uh, took the blessing away from his older brother, Esau. He lied to his father. After that, of course, it resulted in, in his brother Esau seeking to kill Jacob, and so he had to flee for his, his life. And uh, the Bible has some incredibly raw sibling rivalries. And the Bible is such a real book, and here's, here's an example of one. Now, I want you to know that at, at this point of this young man's life, Jacob, there is no virtue that we can see in him worthy of emulating. You know, this whole series is called Follow Me as I Follow Christ. Well, we could not see at this point in Jacob's life anything that we could say was, well, that's something worth following. No. He is not a good example. He is a conniver. He is a backstabbing, heel-grabbing, no-good, deceiving person out for himself. And on the journey to Haran to find a wife among his mother's people, God meets him. He has his first genuine encounter with God. And you know the story. It's found in Genesis chapter 28. God meets Jacob in a dream. You know, I've heard various stories where God has revealed himself to people in dreams. Maybe you know of one. And in this dream, Jacob sees this ladder or this stairway that goes all the way up to heaven, and angels are coming and going on it. And at the top is God, whatever God looked like in his dream to Jacob. And God spoke to Jacob in this dream in chapter 28. And in verse 15, he said, Behold, Jacob... I am with you. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. And the land on which you are lying, I will give to you and your offspring. So God is telling Jacob, he's renewing the promise he had made to his grandfather Abraham. He repeats it. Behold, I'm with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. I will never leave you. And I will fulfill everything I've promised, God says to Jacob. This is, this is Jacob's first God moment, okay? When Jacob wakes up, he knows this is a special place, and so he decides he's going to call it Bethel. Bethel means house of God. So the very place that he has landed there and slept is now called house of God. And he makes a vow to God. He kind of bargains with God. In fact, he uses the bargaining language. He says, if, then... He says, if you do this and this and this and this and this, God, then I'll do this and this and this. That's what he does. 
He's still the deceiver. He's still the bargainer. He's still the conniver, even with God. This is the first crack of faith, though, because he's had a God encounter. God has a lot to do yet in Jacob. I want you to know there's a little Jacob in all of us. So let's see what God does now to work in Jacob. If you were to choose another word besides deceiver to describe Jacob, I would think that the best word we could ever choose is the word wrestler. He wrestled with God. It summarizes his whole life. He wrestled with everyone and everything. I already told you about the two babies that wrestled within their mother's womb, Esau and Jacob, how he wrestled with his brother and he stole his birthright and his blessing. He had a default setting right from the womb to be a fighter, to wrestle. He was instinctively self-sufficient. He trusted no one. His core belief was that if it's going to be, it's up to me. Jacob was that kind of a guy. He didn't even trust God. And in God's infinite wisdom and patience and love, he began through a series of life events to knock off all the rough edges, to chip away at the self-sufficient pride that was in Jacob that is in you and I as well. And so God begins to lead Jacob's life through a series of wrestlings and struggles. Some are of his own doing, and some are thrust upon him. But all of them are under the sovereign hand of a wonderful, loving, and almighty God. Jacob would have looked at other people's lives at this point in his day and said, Oh, look at that life. They live such a charmed life. No struggles, no problems. And yet, Jacob was making half of his own problems for himself. Have you ever known someone like that? Well, how is it that Jacob wrestled? Jacob wrestled with his brother, as I mentioned. He probably wrestled with his father Isaac, who probably saw Esau as the favored son. He was the oldest, and he was the hunter and fisher outdoorsman. Whereas Jacob was a mama's boy, and he would stay inside. Isaac liked Esau. Now, he wrestled with his brother, his father. When he leaves and finally finds a wife, he wrestles with his father-in-law, Laban. He works seven years to get the hand of this beautiful woman he met named Rachel. And at the end of seven years, he has given her younger sister Leah. He works another seven years for, for Rachel again. So 14 years he works for Laban to get his wife, and he ends up with two. And then when the two of them are his wives, they wrestle and fight with each other, and they compete because they want his attention. They want to have more children through him. And so they, there's a wrestling with his wives as well. And then at the end of that 14 years, he works another six years. And at the end of that six years, 20 years now with Laban, he is tricked out of his wages. <clears throat> I mean, he, he wrestled with everybody he met. You see how his life was a wrestling match with people and circumstances. And yet all the while, underneath the whole thing, it was really God that he was wrestling with. At every turn and every decision, Jacob was saying, 
I don't like my life. I don't like what I have. I don't like this. I'm going to take control. I can't trust God to give me the life that I need. I will control the outcomes of my destiny. <clears throat> God was patiently standing by, watching Jacob do his stuff. 20 plus years watching Jacob do his stuff. Knocking off of those rough edges. And in chapter 32, the text that Mark read to us today, we turn the page now to a little bit of an older Jacob who's had some hard knocks and is maybe about to learn some important lessons. But the fundamental operating principle of his life is still the same. He's still basically wanting to control every outcome. And he is very self-sufficient. In chapter 32, verse 3, we read about a turning point. He is about to meet up with his brother Esau, who 20-plus years earlier he had deceived, and had, Esau had wanted to kill him. He's on his way back, and he's convinced that he has to solve the problem himself, even though he had heard God promise to him that God would protect him, would lead him back to the promised land, and fulfill the promise he had made to Abraham through Jacob. He didn't believe it. And so he sends out a peace offering ahead of him to, to make peace with Esau. When they come back, they tell him that Esau is on his way with 400 men armed. He's very afraid. Jacob has met his match. Jacob doesn't know what to do. He divides his entire family into two groups and sends one one way and one another way. He sends more envoys of peace offerings to try and uh, pacify his brother. He is on a road that he has no clue on how to end. And finally, in verse 9, it says in the scripture, O oh God, my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac. So as he starts to pray, this is the first recorded prayer. This is the first recorded prayer of Jacob since 20 years earlier in a dream. Do you notice that he's still saying, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac. He's not saying, my God. He's still that self-sufficient kind of guy. He continues praying. He says, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you've shown to me. For only with my staff did I cross this Jordan, and now I have become these two camps. Would you please deliver me from the hand of my brother? You see, we're starting to see a genuine calling out to God, the first recorded prayer. And in those 20 middle years of life, we see that Jacob maybe is learning some lessons in those 20 middle years. Perhaps at this point in time, we could say that Jacob is operating from two principles or two sources. He is wanting to call out to God and believe in God, but he's making his own backup plans. You know, I think that a lot of us operate that way. I think our hearts are so deceitful, we don't realize that we call out to God, we want God's will, we pursue God, but we're really making plan B in case God doesn't come through. If you were to analyze your faith and drill down into your faith journey, you might see that characteristic in your life as well. 
But there comes a time when God corners us. There comes a time when God leaves us no options. There comes a time when money won't buy your way out of it. You can't talk your way out of it. You can't think your way through it. Your wisdom is not enough. Your strength will fail. And he corners you. That's when God is going to say, it's time to go to the deeper waters with your faith. God will do this with all of us. And in chapter 32, verse 22, Jacob now sends his servants, his wives, his children, and all of his possessions across the Jordan River, but he stays on the other side. And this is the first time, probably since 20 years earlier, he is alone with God. He is absolutely alone. It says in verse 24, Jacob was left alone. The location of this place this private encounter across from Canaan is literally called the Ford of the Jabbok. And that word Jabbok means poured out or emptying. It's, it's spiritually significant. It's why the writer Moses includes it. It's spiritually significant that that's where Jacob landed, at the Jabbok, this place of self-emptying. Because if Jacob was not going to empty himself of all of his self-sufficient pride and independence, there would be no room for God in Jacob's life. This was the moment of truth. Are you going to trust me, God said, or are you going to rely on your own understanding? This is true for every one of us. God cannot fill a cup that is already full. D.L. Moody said, God sends no one away empty except those who are full of themselves. The Bible says that God, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. And so God... Is, is always at work to bring us to that humble place of receiving from him. Is there an area of your life, is there an area of your circumstances right now, right now where, where God is standing by waiting for you to humble yourself, waiting for you to acknowledge that you don't have the answers, waiting for you to ask for somebody else's help? Your pride and your unbelief are the two biggest enemies, not just of your soul, but of your progress on this earth. God has the best life possible for you. You could not improve on God's plan for your life. In verse 24, it says in the scripture that a man wrestled with Jacob until the breaking of the day. The verb wrestled there. It has the idea of getting dusty. You really get the picture in the Hebrew text that this was a dusty brawl that Jacob wrestled with this man, this incarnate deity. And wrestling with him meant that if he was going to be spared and, and get whatever he could get, he had to hang on for dear life to get the blessing. Finally, God had Jacob where he wanted him didn't have him in a headlock. God had him that Jacob was now hanging and clinging to God 
instead of looking for other ways of getting through. God was happy with this wrestling match. God was happy that Jacob was now wrestling through a matter and holding on to God until he could get God's blessing over that matter and God's answer over that problem. This is a happy thing for God. Now this sermon series is called Follow Me as I Follow Christ. And so I want to conclude by sharing four different conditions that I believe we learned from Jacob on how to have a genuine encounter with God. If you're interested in having a real genuine encounter with God, whether it will be your first encounter with God or your 101st encounter with God, all of these four conditions will have to be met if you're going to really encounter God. And so let's take a look at them. First of all, there has to be some kind of an admission on your part. You have to be willing to face the mistakes of your past and seek restitution or reconciliation. It requires that you humble yourself. And I want you to know this is a universal spiritual principle. There is no way around this. If you will not humble yourself, you will not know God. You will not come to God. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. The only way up is down. We cannot expect holy God to draw near to us when we are fundamentally disagreeing with his assessment of us. If you are disagreeing with God's assessment that you have a big ego, that you are proud, that you are self-sufficient, that you are independent, he's not going to draw near, folks. You can go your own way. I cannot count how many times in my life that I had to humble myself. It has become a spiritual centerpiece in my life. It has become the, the bricks and mortar of my spiritual life. This requirement that the Holy Spirit prompts me in to humble myself. There is no way up but down. When I poked holes in the dining room chairs of my parents' place as a kid, and I, and I got pinned against the wall, my brother and I, and my brother finally admitted to doing it, and I knew I did it. I had to humble myself months, maybe years, I can't remember, later. I had to say, Mom, it was me. When I lied to my parents about failing swimming lessons again and that they had run out of badges, I had to humble myself and say, Mom, Dad, I didn't pass. When I smoked marijuana during the teenage years of my life for about a year to see what it was like with my friends. God knocked on my door and he said, and he, I, I humbled myself. I, I went and I told my mom, asked for prayer. 
And when I discipline my children in anger, sometimes, I had to humble myself. And when I was sharp or rude or not gentle with my wife, Pat, I have had to humble myself. And when I've gone sometimes to dark places in secret and looked at things I shouldn't have, God has given me this annoying Holy Spirit in me that says, you need to bring that into the light with some other person that loves and knows you. You need to humble yourself. And when I have been impatient or rude with a staff member here at White Ridge Baptist Church, I've had to humble myself. And even when in the past years of ministry, I have had just cause to be really ticked off at unjust treatment, I have had to humble myself, take the initiative, and go to a person when my offense was this small compared to their offense against me being this big, I had to take the initiative and humble myself. I've not spoken about it publicly, but in a former pastoral ministry, I had been accused of things that were untrue, and my credentials as a pastor, ordained pastor, were taken into question. I had to fly to Toronto to defend my credentials before a committee of 20 people. And when they found nothing wrong, they let me continue in ministry. And I took the letters of accusation. When I got them, I took the letters of accusation. One of them was nine pages long. And I laid them on the table at the next deacons meeting. The deacons were like the board of our church in that church. And I said, you guys judge me. I had to humble myself, though, because some of the perpetrators of those accusations that were false, I, sh I spoke sharply to. And I had to go to them and apologize, and I had to humble myself. The point I'm making is that there's no way that you will progress in your spiritual life if you're not willing to take account of your past, own it, make restitution, be reconciled. You name the area, whatever it is, God calls you to humble yourself. And it, don't, don't, don't mess with me. Humbling yourself is always in front of another person. You say, what does this mean in the scriptures? Humble yourselves before the Lord God. Well, you go to another person. You'll not get far in knowing God if you're not going to learn this fundamental lesson. Let's move on. Connected to that is confession. We see in this scripture that Jacob made the confession of recognition of his own unworthiness and gratitude to God for all that he's got. He says in chapter 32, verse 10, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For only my staff I did I have when I crossed this Jordan. He is admitting it. He is acknowledging he's not worthy. He'd spent 20 years working hard and, and being deceived and deceiving. And yet all the way through, all the prosperity that God had given him, he acknowledges it's because of God. He made the confession. His heart was ready to meet God. 
And now we see him not take the credit for all the stuff, but give the credit to God. And so uh, do not expect a close encounter with God if you're not acknowledging your own unworthiness and acknowledging that you need to be grateful to God. Your ego does not have any room for God. He will keep his distance from you. But if you can look past your own efforts and see that he's the one that has blessed you, you might see him draw near to you. Thirdly, petition. God, another condition for a closer walk with God that Jacob shows us is reflected in his petition in verse 11. He says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear that he may come and attack me, the mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now this does not look like much of a faith journey when his back is against the wall and he starts crying out to God. It's like they say foxholes have no atheists, right? Now here he is, he's up against the wall. So is this, is this really faith? Well, the interesting thing is, is that He's not calling out to Laban's gods, the household gods, you know, that Rachel stole from her dad. He's not calling out to false gods. He's calling out to the one true living God. That's one good thing in his stead. And secondly, he's calling out in the right way. He's holding God accountable for his promises. And that's what God loves. God loves it when we turn to him instead of something else. He loves it when we remind him of his word. And the kind of petition that we see here is actually good. When I think about how in, in our almost 40 years of marriage, God has redirected our path in different ways for Pat and I, it has always been through the Word of God. I can, I can point our journey out by the, the book of Jonah or the life of Abraham or a passage in 1 Timothy, and I can tell you of incredible changes in direction based on God's leading uh, because of the way that he's used his scripture, because of the way he has given providential circumstances. That means circumstances that are beyond my control that just happened at the same time as something else happening. God leads this way. And if you're in step with God, you'll know that, that um, he's able. He's able to communicate to you, direct your steps. I discovered... Uh, one day when I was at a grad sale many, many years ago, this book, uh, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, kind of a corny title. It was written in 1870, so you can, you know. But uh, it's written by Hannah Whittle-Smith. Hannah Whittle-Smith was a Quaker. And I don't endorse everything that the Quakers taught or that she teaches in this book. But she teaches at one point in a chapter in this book about how to discern the will of God for your life how to petition God in a way that God is going to hear that prayer. Because a lot of the prayers that we, we, we pray, they're not really prayers that God is going to receive because they're completely contrary to his will to begin with. And she says that there's actually four different things. There's, first of all, the scriptures. Is this, is this thing in line with scripture, this petition that you're coming to God for? Secondly, are there providential circumstances that God is lining up that, that absolutely align with that scripture that God seems to be reminding you of over and over again. Thirdly, is, is there some kind of a strong conviction that's on your own judgment? 
It's just, I just feel, I feel strongly convicted this is the way we're meant to go. And then finally, is there an impression of the Holy Spirit given? Yeah, he might use a dream. He might use a completely independent person to come and confirm something. But Hannah Whittle Smith said this is one of the ways that she found to discern the will of God. When all these things line up, maybe this is the time to say, maybe God, maybe you're leading in that direction. Four principles can make us clear in decision making. Well, the final thing I wanted to share on this is that is that uh, there's this determination of perseverance to press into God and prevail in God. If you're going to have a genuine encounter with God, you're going to have to hang on to God, press into God. Don't give up pursuing God because God is going to be your only hope. And the new name that God gives to Jacob here is, is the, the name Israel. And the name Israel means wrestling with God. The nation of Israel has wrestled with God. Jacob wrestled with God. A key turning point in his life was that God broke through. And Jacob loved God so much he would, wanted to hang on and get the blessing from God. John Walton says this, a guy named John Walton, he says, each of us must ask what is necessary in our lives for us to see God face to face. What reality do we need to learn about ourselves? It may not be self-reliance that we have to recognize. Perhaps it is vanity or selfishness or greed. But whatever it is, our usefulness to God will depend on it. I think there's a little bit of Jacob in all of us. And I think that every one of us will be brought to a fort of the Jabbok, this place of self-emptying so that God can fill us. And my prayer this morning is that you would find that place and that uh, God might bless you because God wants to bring you to the place of true humility, true happiness, and true holiness. Let's pray together. Father, our God, we just thank you for the life of Jacob. Uh, what a man he was thousands of years ago. And yet, in your word, he still somehow speaks to us, or you speak through him. And Father, I know there's a little Jacob in me, there's a little Jacob in all of us. Would you help us to identify that, that deceitfulness, that way of independently pursuing our own plans instead of yours? And would you help us to truly open the door of faith? to believe in you and to trust in you with whatever thing we need to trust you with.